A missile launches from the hermit kingdom of North Korea, then another, and another. Soon North Korea will have the ability to target any city in the U.S. with an ICBM fitted with a nuclear warhead. Should we accept that as the new reality? Pursue diplomacy? Prepare a military response? Can economic warfare provide a solution? This week, I'm joined by FDD senior fellow and resident North Korea expert Anthony Ruggiero. I'm Cliff May. Join us on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no rules. Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence, that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. Well, I'm very pleased to have Anthony Ruggiero with me to talk about the crisis, really, in, in North Korea, which continues to unfold and continues to mature. Thanks for being here. Uh, Anthony, I thought we might start. One thing you can do in a podcast you can't do in a TV interview is provide a kind of bit of context. And I think there are probably plenty of people who are concerned about North Korea who don't really understand where North Korea came from. And essentially, it came out of World War II, the defeat of the Japanese. And the Soviets occupied part of the Korean Peninsula. And initially, there was an agreement between the U.S. and the Soviet Union to divide the peninsula with the North being under uh, communism and being under the influence of the Soviets and the South under the influence of the U.S. Um, but it didn't work out so well. Well, that's right. And, you know, of course, we had the Korean War. Uh, Which was from was the started, North invading the right, South. started with the North. Uh, of course, North Korea has a different version of that history uh, of South Korea and in particular the United States uh, started the Korean War in, in their view and and uh, were the aggressors. Is there any evidence of that? I mean, there were North Korean troops that came across the 38th parallel, if memory serves, and decided they were going to try, and I think this had Stalin's blessing, to take over the entire peninsula, no? Well, I think almost everything that comes from North Korea you have to uh, take with a grain of salt. Just yesterday I was... Uh, uh, reading some of their press that said that they won a marathon in Asia. And then when I looked it up, it turned out they weren't even the top, in the top three. So, uh, you know, North Korea has a tendency of exaggerating things. I think for them, the pop propaganda value of saying it was the United States that pushed uh, north instead of the reverse uh, is valuable for them. And I think this is this fits a larger narrative for them, which is that, you know, the United States and South Korea, which to them is a puppet regime, uh, is really the aggressor here. And that the only way for North Korea to survive is for their people to suffer in order for them to develop these weapon systems and to have this uh, really a caste system of elites uh, that are bleeding the resources uh, from the North Korean people. Uh, you know, the weapons programs, you know, something I'm mostly focused on is, you know, has been, uh, you know, weapons programs have been, uh, you know, really started in the 1990s. Uh, but, you know, the nuclear program itself started all the way back in the 60s. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, it's a popular refrain to suggest that uh, that, 
that North Korea is afraid of the U.S. hostile policy, uh, afraid of uh, whether it was uh, President Clinton's uh, actions against uh, the former Yugoslavia or uh, President Bush's actions in Iraq or U.S. actions in Libya. Uh, but the convenient point that has missed is that these these programs really started in the case of the nuclear program in the 60s, in the case of the missile program probably in the early 80s. Uh, it shows you know a dedication to getting an uh, intercontinental ballistic missile that can reach the United States with a nuclear weapon. And we'll come back to that in a second. But I just also want to point out that you had the grandfather of the current dictator, and the grandfather being Kim Il Sung. Um, who began this. Now, he was, one would might say, a, something of a Stalinist, but he also changed the ideology into something that was specifically, as I guess you might, he might put it, North Korean, not Korean, North Korean version of Stalinism. And he had been a, he had been a communist organizer from, what, the 1920s, hadn't right, he? Right, yeah. right. I mean, you know, this is a country that is, is a communist country, but you know, has a dynastic, uh, you know, succession. There, there have been three leaders. They're all Kim. They're all, you know, Kim Il Sung, the grandfather of the current leader, Kim Jong Kim Jong Il, the father of the current leader, and then of course the current leader, Kim Jong Un. And so, you know, there is this, uh, you know, Pope people refer to it as this cult of personality, or, you know, everybody wears the the Kim pins, the red uh, flagged pins. On, over their breast, uh, you know, at least on, for the first two leaders. Uh, so there is really this, uh, this, th- th- there's this element of communism, but there's this element, element of sort of a monarchy or dynasty uh, part of that. But with almost you know, godlike qualities to these leaders, right, as right. they see themselves as they prefer to be seen. Right, and there are some who have written about you know the sort of the the holy trinity type thing, you know, the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit, right? So, um, but you know, a little different approach in terms of North Korea. But you know, in the in you know any the slightest uh, insult to the any of those dear leaders, supreme leaders, however they they want to refer themselves, uh, you know, will get you uh, you know you and perhaps even three generations of your family in political prisons if you're if you're a North Korean. But you know, if you're a U.S. or foreigner, you can be punished uh, heavily for that. And just one more question with historical uh, content, and that is, initially there was the invasion of the South, there was the Korean War, and the U.S. came in to prevent the takeover. Would you say that ever since the Kim dynasty has maintained the ambition of establishing its dominance, its hegemony, its, its, its rule over the entire Korean Peninsula? Yeah, you know, this is this is more controversial than I, I expected. You know, when I was in government, uh, and you were in government about seventeen years, seventeen yeah. years, and and working on sanctions and other elements. I don't think it was as controversial. You know, I actually would just ask the question of, well, now that they have, you know, they've completed an ICBM that can reach all of the United States. Do you think that, you know, that's it? You know, they're gonna, you know, deploy it and then move on to the next thing. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I have to say I'm surprised there were three articles 
at least three that I saw today that suggested that you know the third ICBM test is is the you know the watershed moment for them, and now they're finally ready to and open to go into negotiations. You know the points I made in in response to that are the are or what you said. You know what, the first one is what you said, which is their ultimate goal is a Korea a unified Korean Peninsula under North Korea's rule. And so, you know, the ICBM is just one element of that that allows them or they believe will allow them to prevent the United States from coming uh, to the aid of its treaty ally in South Korea or in Japan, you know, in terms of Japan as well. You know, the second element is that people seem to have short memories. I mean, in April, the North Koreans showed a lot of long-range missiles beyond just the Wasong 15 or 14, whatever they're calling it, so it's likely that North Korea has additional ballistic missiles. Certainly, I think that they're going to deploy these. They'll declare them deployable. But to suggest that North Korea is going to then shut down that program uh, for any re- you know for any you know voluntary reason, even the suspension of sanctions, uh, just you know doesn't doesn't work for me logically. Uh, I think that that people have a hard time, or at least I believe, have a hard time moving from point A, which is right now where they have these weapons programs, to point B. You know, the next day, Kim uh, Jong-un is going to wake up and say, now it's time to negotiate. This most recent missile test, does it, is it a game changer? Well, they have, I mean, in the short time, you know, uh, their first launch coming in early July, uh, and then their second launch uh, of ICBMs in uh, late July, they've they've steadily increased the range of the missile. Now it seems like you know it's always a difficult place to get us our, ourselves in because uh, whenever you say there's more to work on, uh, I think people take that as a positive and say, "See, they're not ready." Uh, but I think we have to be careful that uh, likely this particular launch had a light warhead. Uh, and that they would need a they would need the ability to uh, be able to deliver a nuclear weapon, which would be a lot heavier. Uh, and then also there's questions about reentry. Uh, you know, there's there's stresses on the warhead that comes back in. Uh, but you know, the bottom line is that North Korea has. Per- there, I remember only a couple of years ago. Uh, we were debating uh, whether North Korea could master stage separation uh, when they had uh, some of their blow-ups of the what they were calling, I think, the Yunha three and the old the old Taebodong two, uh, and so you know they have progressed from that to this. And I think the other thing to watch out for is that they are going to have a solid propellant missile program that's going to be far more dangerous than this current missile program because it will allow them to go a lot farther with a lot heavier warheads. So I think there's more to go, but this is very dangerous, and I think it is an important moment in their programs. The other thing that's changed in a pretty rapid time span, there was concern not long, long ago they could hit Japan, they could hit South Korea, they could hit Guam, they might be able to hit Hawaii. The West Coast is in danger. What we're talking about now is the clear ambition and the achievable goal of hitting Washington, D.C., hitting anywhere in the continental United States. Again, they may not be entirely there in terms of mastering all the technology, but you correct me if I'm wrong, they're, got, they're, they're getting pretty close and it's not clear that the the, the difficulties of solving the technological problems they have are by any means insurmountable, in this, even in the short term or medium term. 
Right. I mean, I think North Korea is far more capable than people give it credit for, whether it's in their nuclear missile space or the cyber activity space. You know, I would also uh, point out that, you know, there's there's a definite focus on the ICBM program, but the IRBM program, the Intermediate Range Ballistic Missile, that they've uh, essentially perfected this year uh, is, is equally dangerous, not only for Guam, uh, probably for uh, Japan, uh, but it also is probably more likely to be a vehicle that they would be able to export. Uh, you know, North Korea's ballistic missile program, you know, there was a time when they, uh, you know, they, they sent a lot of missiles overseas, in particular to the Middle East, uh, Syria and Iran and Egypt and elsewhere are, are particular uh, customers of theirs. I think Iran in particular uh, would have a desire for a intermediate range ballistic missile with a successful testing history. So that, you know, that's a dangerous uh, development that I think is really flown under the radar with the ICBM developments and the large thermonuclear device that they tested this year. Yeah. So what we're, we're what we should emphasize here is we're talking about the threat from North Korea, but we're also talking about the proliferation threat that North Korea represents, because anything that North Korea develops could end up easily in the hands of Iran, in the hands of Syria. The North Koreans built a nuclear facility that the Israelis destroyed some time ago. Um, any of the weapons they build could end up in the hands of terrorists. There's nothing, they have no scruples about such things if they can sell it or if they think it's useful for them to give it away. No reason to think they wouldn't do that. Right. I think, you know, uh, the, what I always like to say is North Korea is willing to sell to anyone as long as they're willing to pay. Uh, and so, you know, they built a nuclear reactor in Syria that most people would prefer to forget about. Uh, and the Iranians uh, have a lot of money that they uh, got from the nuclear deal. Uh, I think, you know, the important thing, too, is that uh, there's that aspect where there's the hardware aspect that could be traded amongst uh, North Korea and Iran or other countries but there's also the lesson that uh, countries are learning from our approach to North Korea. And I think, you know, from my perspective, there are far too many people, uh, you know, smart people who are more than willing to accept North Korea as a nuclear state. Well, yeah, that's one thing you're hearing from some in this debate. Some are saying, look, we simply have to accept the fact that North Korea is going to become a nuclear state and that North Korea will have the ability to send a nuclear missile to Washington, D.C., or New York, or Los Angeles, or wherever else they want. It's not the end of the world. We accepted that with the Soviet Union. We've accepted it with China. Pakistan has nuclear weapons and missiles. We should just accept it. It's, it's, I must say I find that less, not such a convincing argument, given the, some of what we've been discussing. Well, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, um, part of that narrative is – the, you know, for, part of it is uh, a, an aggressive narrative suggesting that those who don't agree with that are naive. And in other words, you know, suggesting that North Korea doesn't have a nuclear weapon. Of course they have a nuclear weapon. Uh, they've had one for some time. This is a question of what end state are you willing to accept? Are you willing to accept a North Korea with a nuclear weapon 
where you essentially are giving them uh, carte blanche to proliferate, as we were discussing, uh, the ability to be more aggressive with South Korea. I mean, they have they sunk a South Korean freighter in you know, 2010, uh, killing over 40 sailors, and that was before we recognized them as a nuclear state. What are they going to do after and that? And they did that with impunity, pretty much. Impunity. I mean, they built a nuclear reactor in Syria with impunity. Now, the other, the other I mean, the logic dictates that uh, Iran will look at North Korea and say, I mean, there are some of us, myself included, and I've already I've written about this, uh, you know, that basically uh, Tehran is already using uh, Pyongyang's playbook. Uh, and probably some of its technology. Right. Some of its technology. They're doing some of the same things that North Korea did in the 90s. But, you know, accepting North Korea as a nuclear weapons state uh, would just accelerate that. You know, the, the Iranians would be, you know, in their mind would be justified to go back to the P5 plus one and say, yeah, you know what? We do want to renegotiate that nuclear deal. And guess what? We want the, we want the North Korea version of it. Mm. Uh, and we want nuclear weapons. Uh, and, you know, I think then that from that, I think we'll see, we could see even more proliferation, not only in, in Asia, but in, in, in the Middle East as well. We should say that the failure to address this maturing problem is bipartisan and goes back years and years because it's, this has become very difficult to address uh, effectively and without tremendous risk now. But it probably – that was not the case. 25 years ago, uh, a diplomatic approach was taken. President Clinton, in particular, um, concluded the agreed framework. He said, "This this deal will work. We now have it worked out that North Korea will never have a, a nuclear weapon." Uh, he was wrong, um, and uh, the and and this problem could have been solved years ago. And now it's may have to be solved. But it's it's a much more difficult, dangerous operation we're talking about, and we'll get to what 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 that might look like. Yeah, I mean, this is a bipartisan failure. I mean, it's uh, you know, it's one of the one of the issues where uh, you know, I think there's some partisanship on both sides, but uh, you know, it's clear that the Obama administration did not put enough uh, focus on North Korea. You know, some of the actions you're seeing out of the Treasury Department under this administration. Uh, you know, the activities go back to 2009, so suggesting that some of these uh, illicit activities were engaged in that. I mean, President Bush should have never removed uh, North Korea from the state sponsor of terrorism list in 2008 uh, just because uh, he and Chris Hill and other people in that administration thought that they had the, the golden, uh, you know, negotiated uh, solution with North Korea. I mean, they did other things, obviously, in that negotiation that would was, that were, were a serious mistake. Uh, the Clinton administration should have taken uh, North Korea's uh, prov- provocations more seriously. They should not have provided additional incentives when North Korea was uh, was looking to, to test long-range missiles uh, in the late 1990s. Unfortunately, you know, you can go on and on when it comes to North Korea. And even this administration, you know, I give them a lot of credit for being the first one that is finally willing to go after Chinese uh, nationals, Chinese companies, Chinese entities, uh, Chinese bank, well, one Chinese bank, but they're not going far enough. I mean, it doesn't take, it's not that hard to 
realize that they're going after like this, the, the company at the top of a network and then leaving the rest of the network intact. And that's, you know, that's a mistake. And I think that, you know, at some level it might come back to bite them if they're only willing to go so far. And then the Chinese will sort of shrug and say, well, this guy, you know, this guy's not willing to go as far as he's really saying, likely, likely saying in private. You know, we mentioned that you have people, and predominantly on the left, saying we just have to accept North Korea as a nuclear power and learn to live with it. We don't have to like it, but we have to live with it. On the other side, more on the right, you have people like John Bolton saying the time for diplomacy has passed. Uh, and I say, I would imagine that what he means by that is it's time to look at what the military options are and choose one. It will not be pretty. It will not be nice. But we have that's what we have to do. Um, I think you're saying, from based on the, what, I, what I've read, is there are still diplomatic and, more importantly, economic warfare mechanisms that can be put to use. In other words, not diplomacy, oh, if we could just talk this out, we'll clean up all these misunderstandings, but pressure that can be put on that hasn't been put on yet because the sanctions have only been on for a relatively short time in this administration. And it's untrue when you hear this all the time on TV and radio that North Korea is the most sanctioned country in the world. And you're arguing, no, not nearly. No, it's not. Uh, you know, it's not the most sanctioned. I was pleased uh, earlier today. I actually heard someone, uh, another, uh, you know, think tanker say that North Korea is not the most sanctioned uh, country in the world. So uh, perhaps we're, we're making some headway there. I think, you know, it's clear that they are not. It's clear that there are more options. I mean, that you know, when you look at the spectrum between do nothing or engage in a military strike, there are areas in the middle. When it comes to diplomacy, sure, I would love to have uh, actual, real denuclearization talks, but North Korea is not interested in that. Uh, it's clear, you know, that you don't have to, you know, you don't have to go far to see what they're telling us they want to do. They see themselves in the role of the Soviet Union. Uh, with arms control talks with the United States and that the the bulk of those talks would be to limit um, likely both sides nuclear weapons programs. Uh, and that's, you know, I think the Trump administration has rightly rejected that. Uh, the issue here is that uh, there are far too many people, whether they're on the left or the right, uh, that, are, that are willing to say, well, you know, deterrence worked for the Soviet Union and it worked against North Korea for 50 or 60 years. So why does it not work now? I mean, I would say, first of all, of course, we can deter North Korea from launching a military strike against South Korea. Sometimes they actually do that, as I, as I noted in 2010. But when we talk about proliferation, you know, deterrence is our policy. Can we deter North Korea from proliferating? Uh, the answer, of course, is no. And, and also, let's try to imagine a situation in which North Korea has the ability to uh, deliver nuclear weapons anywhere in the world. Various sorts of blackmail could come to mind. They could say, look, we're poor here in North Korea. Thanks to you, thanks to the imperialist West, we'll need $100 million, a billion dollars over per month. Otherwise, we're going to let the nuclear weapons fly. I can imagine people saying, I guess we have to pay them. It's better than losing Los Angeles. It's cheaper than losing Los Angeles. Let's do it. There are all kinds of things they could do once they have that, that, that power. And yes, you can say, well, we'll wipe them out after their first strike. But are you willing to trade one American city first before that happens? Is that really going to be the policy? Well, exactly. And that gets back also into the whole proliferation, uh, nuclear proliferation element, because once South Korea and Japan 
realize that the United States is not willing to trade one of their cities for one of the Japanese or South Korean cities, then that their rationale for going nuclear increases. I would imagine that there are countries in the Middle East that will see the writing on a wall where Iran will get a weapon and that they will feel the same thing and say, you know, the reliability of the U.S. nuclear umbrella uh, is, is is simply not as reliable uh, post when North Korea is able to deliver that. And I think you're right. I mean, I think blackmail is a definite possibility. I mean, I would argue, you know, I would add, you know, what stops, you know, why would North Korea go through a protracted negotiations? They can just say, you know, if you do not release these sanctions, we're going to do X, Y, Z. They'll probably just say that in private to China, and then the Chinese will be pressured Uh, both probably from the United States, but then also from North Korea to really reduce sanctions. North Korea is much more um, a client of uh, China at this point than it is of of Russia. Do you believe at this point China is doing everything it can to rein in uh, Kim Jong-un? Well, they're certainly doing more than they they did earlier this year. So I think we should give them some credit. Um, I don't give them as much credit as a lot of people do. Uh, simply because, you know, I think the Chinese uh, fall into this, their own sort of trap of they focus simply on North Korea. The Chinese are not interested in focusing on their own nationals and their activities uh, with regard to North Korea. And it's been proven uh, a few of the times we've actually uh, targeted Chinese nationals is that the Chinese increase their their own investigations of what their nationals are doing. And so, you know, that in my mind, that really argues for the United States should not fear retaliation from Beijing. It's that the, in a smart way, it should be unleashing, uh, unleashing additional U.S. sanctions against Chinese interests. How long would it, if, if you decided, you know, people think, how to say this, people think sanctions are one thing, which is like saying, there's no difference if I hit you with a pillow or, or with a sledgehammer. It's going to be very different. Really serious economic warfare is intended to bring an economy to its knees, to, to, to really to destroy the economy. Is it possible to do that with North Korea, to so isolate them economically that uh, it becomes clear that this economy is going to entirely collapse unless they come to the table willing to make concessions? Well, I think there's ways to change their calculus. You know, the way I look at it is – uh, they have a revenue stream coming into North Korea, uh, and you know they certainly don't use that for their own people. This is not a country that has a white channel or legitimate channel buying food and medicine for its people, and you know making sure they don't suffer. I mean, they're you know that is that is part of their ideology of you know they have a hundred thousand political prisoners. Uh, they have others that that are very clearly. Uh, suffering under their um, under their watch, so you know the resources that they use go to the you know I like to say three places: the military, the elites in the form of luxury goods or payoffs, and then also for their weapons programs. And right now, you know, before the beginning of robust sanctions, they were able to rank those one A, B, and C. Uh, now they're going to have to start ranking those one, two, and three when those revenue streams start to reduce. And the question here is, I, I would imagine that the weapons programs will always be number one. What will happen when the military and the elites start to see their own benefits suffer? Uh, and I think then that's where you're going to see, because all three of those elements are key to regime survival. 
And so then you're going to see uh, a North Korea that is going to have to ma- start making some different decisions than they have had uh, been able to in the past. And I think you know the point I would also make is that the Chinese know what the United States did to Iran, uh, and they have to be afraid of what the United States could do to North Korea. And we should just be clear upon that. What the U.S. did to Iran was to really bring that economy to its knees before the interim agreement, I would argue and have argued, that President Obama made a mistake in exchange for the interim agreement. He lifted the pressure. The Iranian economy went from severe recession into modest recovery. We never got another concession after that. In this case, what you would want to do is put on maximum pressure. I think maximum pressure is the word you use in terms of the policy we should have going forward in terms of North Korea, as well as making China understand that it's not business as usual while we're being threatened with nuclear warheads from North Korea. And that maximum pressure does not is not relieved until we get some serious concessions. If that means the economy implodes, crashes and burns essentially, we'll accept that. And we want to do that, I would expect, before we believe they have weapons that are reliable. Right. I think that's right. I think, you know, the other part I would say, too, is that we have to have a clear discussion of what negotiations would look like. I think there's some uh, unclear rhetoric coming out of the administration, not the name calling and all of that, which certainly went too far on both sides, but more of the, you know, if North Korea is going to take the off ramp, because at some point they're going to see that off ramp as a more uh, as a more palatable uh, approach for them, we, you know, the United States should describe what that off ramp looks like. And from my perspective, we should reject the negotiation strategies of the past, where we spent a long period of time guiding ourselves in this negotiation, making the Chinese happy, and in the end did not achieve denuclearization. The United States needs to come up with a, a strategy where North Korea doesn't have to denuclearize first, but it has to make a commitment toward denuclearization first. And that would be different than any of the approaches that we've had to North Korea over the last 25 years. Are there other components to the policy uh, matrix that you are recommending to this administration that you that, that, that you haven't included in this conversation? Yeah, I mean, the, the issue here is that uh, what kind of leverage can we achieve that would make a negotiated settlement more uh, likely? And I think that sanctions remain the best way to move that forward. I think when it comes to a military strike, you know, that you asked about earlier, I think, you know, we're certainly five or 10 years past the point where that was going, that's sort of a viable option, not the responding to a direct provocation on Guam or the United States. But, you know, I think it's pretty clear that uh, the best way forward is is a page of the Iran playbook, which is squeezing North Korea as hard as we can to achieve the leverage to get ourselves to denuclearization. Frankly, I haven't heard a better argument for denuclearization. I mean, the, the other side is simply just willing to throw their hands up and accept North Korea as a nuclear weapons state, which is in the worst possible outcome. I mean, frankly, I put that in the same basket as a military strike against North Korea. I mean, that would be disastrous for America's foreign policy, for national security priorities, and frankly, for proliferation, uh, our proliferation approach. Right. Even though there, th- that could happen, the Pentagon obviously needs to prepare for the possibility, right. particularly if there is a provocation that has to be answered. At that point, 
Right. There needs to there need to be there need to be contingency plans, awful as they may be. The one other thing I'll mention uh, and 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 bring up is over the past eight years or longer, we should have it seems to me had in place a development project on missile defense that was robust and complete, which we did not. Because it is not as hard as sending a man to the moon to conceive of a program where any missile launched into space, uh, ICBM, uh, can be prevented from reaching its intended victims. The technology, a lot of it is already there. There are multiple possibilities. This has not been pursued. I think this is another mistake, and I don't think we can do it in the time frame we need at this point. On the other hand, if we should survive this crisis, (laughs) it would be nice to be able to say we have a real nuclear umbrella. Missiles cannot reach their victims if we don't want them to. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I I think the other element that we have to be prepared for is that uh, North Korea will have countermeasures against uh, missile missile defense. So if we are spending money on missile defense, that we have to make sure that we're we're spending it to match the threat versus you know sort of an assumption that North Korea is is uh, at the very lower end of countermeasures. Anthony Ruggiero, thank you very much for this discussion. We'll be coming back to you as we watch this progress and hopefully get better. But um, it's 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 a it's a crisis. It's um, it's something that we have to all be concerned about, and we will. Thanks for being with us on Foreign Policy. Thanks for having me. Well, that does it for episode two of Foreign Policy. As always, you can find this episode, and you'll find future episodes by subscribing on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. You can also listen to the FDD's website or by heading over to foreignpodicy.com. If you like the show, or if you have feedback for our team, leave us a review on iTunes or email our team directly at foreignpodicy at defenddemocracy.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you'll be with us real soon. Bye for now.